Well, it's a joy to be with you uh, this morning, and uh, I just want to let you know that I, I do have a great respect for your pastor, Pastor Andy, and uh, just grateful for the opportunity to be uh, ministering uh, to you uh, this morning, and uh, I've been blessed just by the, the careful shepherding that takes place here, and the uh, biblical teaching uh, from this uh, pulpit, so uh, definitely a privilege to uh, be able to uh, minister uh, at this place that's uh, just been fed so well about the Word of God, and I listened to a number of uh, Pastor Andy's uh, messages, and I've been encouraged uh, uh, by uh, listening uh, to them, and uh, so you're a congregation that's uh, just well-served and well-fed. I've also uh, appreciated the opportunity to get to know his uh, wife and uh, family, and I'm grateful that the Lord allowed us to connect after so many years uh, uh, from Master's uh, Seminary, and uh, that he's on the East Coast. So uh, grateful for another faithful expositor on the East Coast, and uh, Lord willing, there'll be uh, many more to come. Uh, also, I'm uh, grateful for uh, uh, my wife uh, being here, and uh, I'm just thankful that she had the opportunity to minister to the, the ladies uh, that are here, and uh, I'm grateful uh, for her, as well as my daughter uh, being uh, with me. And uh, also have the added blessing of ministering to my mother on Mother's Day, so, uh, uh, so that's a, a blessing to my own heart and uh, grateful uh, to be here to spend the, the weekend uh, with her. So uh, it's an op- uh, just a, a wonderful privilege to, to be here, and uh, we're going to take a look at the, the Word of God, uh, looking forward to uh, turning your attention uh, to, the, to the Scriptures, and we're going to take a look at the large gift uh, that's contained in the small package of the book of Ruth. So uh, if you would, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth. And uh, this is a book, like I said, it's a short book, uh, but it's uh, chock full. It's saturated with uh, uh, theological truth and practical instruction. Uh, there's so much that we find uh, in the, the book of, of Ruth just to uh, instruct us. And, and that may seem a, a bit surprising uh, because... Uh, in so many ways, the, the book of, of Ruth uh, just seems uh, so ordinary. You know, uh, there's, there's not the kind of, uh, you know, miracles that we find in, in other books or direct words from, from heaven as we might uh, anticipate in the, in the scriptures. We find things that are just very ordinary. Uh, we find ordinary hardships like the grief of losing a spouse or the sorrow over losing a child, uh, the, uh, the concern over physical provision. You know, those are the things that we find in the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth connects us with common people. Uh, we don't find uh, people like kings and, and priests and prophets, uh, but we find people like wives and mothers, uh, those that work in the field, uh, blue-collar workers, you know, small business owners. Also, the, the book of, of Ruth records ordinary events. You know, in the entire book of Ruth, as I already mentioned, uh, we don't find one miracle. Uh, there's no talking donkeys. There's no manna dropping from heaven there's no water coming out of the rock. You know, we find just very ordinary events and um, ordinary people, uh, and that shouldn't uh, really uh, take us off the, uh, the, the message, the main thing that's going on in the book of Ruth, because uh, God is still present in the ordinary, isn't he? <laughs> you know, in the ordinary things of, of life, even though he may not be closing the mouths of lions and parting the Red Sea, uh, God is still very much present in our lives, and that's where we live, isn't it? I'll give you a fancy word for that that theologians use. It's the, the word concurrence, concurrence. And that's just to, to simplify that for you. Uh, what that means is that at the same time that, that ordinary things are happening, that God is also working, that, that God is working in the ordinary circumstances of life. Uh, so when the sun shines on the earth, it's not just the sun that's shining. 
It's God that causes the sun to shine. You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Uh, when the rain falls upon the earth, it's uh, not just rain that's falling. It's God who is sending the rain to fall upon the earth. You know, Psalm 135 and verse 7 says, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. This, this is what comes to us from God. He's the one that allows the, the rain to fall, the sun to shine. And something as insignificant as a blade of grass who causes that grass to grow? It's, it's God who causes the grass to grow. Psalm 104 verse 14 says, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man. So uh, God is the one who causes all of these things. If you had breakfast this morning, it was God who uh, fed you breakfast this morning. It's God who brought that to your table. This, this, is, this is all from the work of, of God. God is at work in all the details of life. He's providentially working behind the scenes. And when we look at the the book of of Ruth and uh, she arrives in Bethlehem, uh, she's actually coming underneath the shadow of his wings, finding shelter from God himself. And that's what Boaz even recognizes, that as Ruth and Naomi travel back to Bethlehem, that it is God uh, whose protection you're seeking. It is God whose security you're coming underneath. He's the one that provides for you. So the book of Ruth is really a book about the providence of God. This is much more than just a a simple love story between Ruth and and Boaz. This is more than a a Hallmark movie with a romantic ending. Uh, This is a a book that goes much deeper than that, has a a greater theological significance uh, behind that. Uh, Boaz might have been the human instrument that God used, uh, but God was using Boaz behind the scenes And he knew, even Boaz knew, that there's something that's much bigger than just what I'm able to provide for you. God is the one who's behind all of this. In Ruth chapter 2, in verse 12, where he says to Ruth, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. He recognizes that it is God behind it. And if we don't understand that connection, uh, we won't appreciate uh, what the story is really telling us about. This is a a story that's just one more demonstration of God who uh, uh, blesses and protects those who seek refuge from him. So you have to connect the dots in the book of Ruth. He is the one who provides us with ultimate security, provision, and rest. And uh, my focus is going to be chapter 4 in the book of Ruth, uh, but don't turn there because I'm actually going to start from chapter 1. Uh, so it's kind of like my sneaky way of getting a survey into the, uh, into the message here. We're going to start at uh, chapter 1 just to get the context Uh, We'll end in chapter 4, that's where I'll focus my time, but uh, just for the sake of context, let's take a look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Follow with me as I read Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is authoritative, it's sufficient, it's 
It really gives us all that we need for life and godliness. And uh, Father, I pray that as we look at this story in the the book of Ruth, Lord, that you would remind us that uh, this word is profitable for us. Uh, Father, that there is instruction that you want us to gain from this book. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would speak to us, Lord, uh, through the words of uh, uh, the scriptures today and uh, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The book of, of Ruth has been regarded by scholars as literary art and theological insight at its finest. Uh, The book of Ruth contains all of the drama and suspense and cliffhangers that you would expect to see in any modern-day film or uh, a television series. Uh, When you open up the book of Ruth and you encounter that that very first verse in chapter 1, now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Uh, When you hear that that statement, uh, that should be like hearing the the words, uh, it was a dark and stormy night. You know, you should be anticipating that, that something's going to happen In this book, because the time of the judges wasn't a good time. Uh, The period of the judges from 1370 BC to 1041 BC was a dark time in Israel's history. So we should be expecting something's gonna happen here. It's 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 opening up saying the dark and stormy night, something's gonna happen. And something does happen. Chapter one opens with the family that came from Bethlehem, travels to Moab outside the land of Israel, searching for food during a time of, of famine. And then by the time we get to verse 3, the dad dies. Then the two sons pick up the pieces of their fragmented family, marry Moabite women, these foreign women. And then by the time you get to verse 5, the two sons die. And now we're left with, with three widows, three, three women who've been bereaved of their husbands without provision, without protection. They're in a foreign land, you know, at least Naomi is, completely devastated. And that's how chapter 1 opens up. It's It's bad. A widow in the ancient Near East was a woman who had been completely divested of a male protector and provision. Those without relatives, without money, without influence, without protection, those are the ones who qualified as the widows. And here we have three of them, three widows, not just one, we've got three. And it's a dangerous place to be during this time. Legally, widows were often ignored. They didn't have any influence wasn't of any personal benefit to care for a widow, to defend a widow. So they often had to plead for the right thing to be done. Jesus actually uses that as an illustration over in Luke chapter 18, where he says there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him to a judge saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And she kept coming to the judge, begging for legal protection. Give me legal protection. Why did she have to keep coming back again and again and again? Because widows were overlooked. What, what, what benefit is it to me that I care for a widow? I mean, she's, she doesn't have anything to offer me. So, so widows were those that were looked down upon, legally taken advantage of, financially taken advantage of. Actually, in Deuteronomy uh, 24 and verse 17, it says, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in a pledge. Basically what that was is if you borrowed, if uh, you lent somebody money, sometimes you take a, you know, something to say, hey, you're actually going to give me this money back. You know, something that I can hold on to, uh, to, to know that you're going to return this to me. And what they would do is they would take the widow's garments in a pledge. Until you repay me, I'm going to hold on to the coat that would have kept you warm. That's how widows were treated. And, and God says, don't, don't treat the widows like this. You don't take their, their garments 
you know, as some kind of collateral until they can pay you back. Don't treat a widow in that way. You'd be merciful to the widows. And the immediate question here becomes, who's going to provide for these widows? Who's going to protect these widows? That's the cliffhanger that we're left with at the end of of chapter 1. By the time you get to chapter 2, we learn that this immediate need is going to be provided. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And, and that's like a, a clue that the, the text gives us to say that uh, the answer is on the way. You know, there, there, there's someone who is a kinsman, who's a relative, and uh, he's a man of great wealth. This could be, and indeed is, the, the place where Naomi and, and Ruth will find protection and provision. So, so, so chapter two really kind of, you know, points us to this one who could be the immediate answer for them. There are basically three ways that widows were uh, provided for in ancient Israel. Uh, they could be taken care of by their grown sons. Uh, the Old Testament command to honor your father and, and mother, which we even celebrate today on, on a day like Mother's Day, to honor our mothers, honor our fathers and mothers. Part of that command included taking care of your mother and father. You know, that's what Jesus talks about over in Mark chapter 7. You know, to, to honor your father and mother meant at least to provide for them, to take care of them, you know, not to say, hey, whatever would have been given to you is uh, now being dedicated uh, to the service of the Lord, as if we can't even care for your mom. Jesus says, don't, don't overturn the, the law of God in order to follow your own traditions. Take, take care of your parents. Honor your father and your mother. So one way that widows were cared for was by their grown sons. Another way that widows were cared for was through remarriage. In ancient Israel, there was a practice Uh, known as uh, Leverite marriage, uh, where if a a man died, uh, that his brother would take his his, his wife, you know, the widow, uh, to care for her, to bring her into his own home, even to raise up children uh, in his place. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25 talks about this in verse 5. It says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Don't, you know, don't just get online and find anybody out there for her. You know, you, you bring her into the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her to himself as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The, 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 the brother-in-law would become the next husband. You know, so if your brother married a, a woman, hopefully you really liked her because if your brother dies, <laughs> you know, she could, she could be coming to you. So, you know, hey, bro, I don't think that's the one that you want. You know, pick this one over here because, uh, you know, just in case, you know, who knows? Uh, but but that, that wife would become, become yours. It was one of the ways that they took care of widows. You know, younger women would become remarried, and they'd marry within the family, take the, the brother and, and become married to him. But in this case, we have Naomi, who's too old to become remarried. It was actually said in 1 Timothy 5, 14, that I want the younger widows to get married. In Naomi's case, she's too old for that. And the third way that widows were cared for was through the different laws for charity. Uh, over in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, if you want to flip over there real quick. Leviticus chapter 19, just so I can show you this. Leviticus 19, look at verse, verse 9. Leviticus 19, starting at verse 9. Look what it says here. It says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard, You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. 
This was the third way that widows were cared for. Those that didn't have means to provide for themselves, they could go into their neighbor's field, and at the edges of their fields, the, the harvest wouldn't be uh, completely taken up. They'd, they'd leave the leftovers. They, they wouldn't harvest their crops right to the very corners of their field. They, they'd leave the edges for the orphans, for the widows, for the foreigners. And this is the position that Naomi and, and Ruth are in. So Ruth happens, just so happens, to stumble upon the field that belonged to a kinsman, Boaz. And again, Boaz is following the, the law of God. He's a, a God-fearing and God-honoring man. And he's following the, the law of God in Leviticus 19, so he doesn't glean it all the way to the end. But he leaves it for, the, for those who would come in, the, the, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners. And Ruth is able to benefit from this provision that was given by God. God cares for his people. Ruth was able to glean from the leftovers in the field. But Boaz does so much more for Ruth than just leaving the corners of his field left untouched. Boaz speaks to Ruth as he would to his own daughter. Look at uh, chapter uh, 2 and, and verse 8. He says, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. He's, he's inviting her, like, hey, don't, don't keep traveling from field to field. This field can provide all that you need. Stay here with me. He wasn't required by the law to speak to her in that way, but he does. He was also not required to invite her to stay with him. Look at verse 9. Let your eyes be on the, the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. I'm going to provide you protection here. Stay with me. I'll provide you protection. He wasn't required to, to do that as well. He was also not required to have his servants draw water. But look at verse 9. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. I'm going to provide everything that you need. You're thirsty. Go get a drink. It's on me. He was not required to provide for her supper. But look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Boaz fed Ruth from his own hand. I will provide for you. If you need anything, you need a break, you need lunch, I'm here, I'm providing everything that you need. This, was, this wasn't just grace. This was amazing grace. This is amazing grace that was provided for Ruth. None of that was required, but she was able to glean from the field. And in verse 17, it says, so she gleaned in the field until, until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And I know that, that, that speaking about the ephah of barley really ministers to your souls, you know, uh, just speaking about the, the ephah. I know, just as soon as I said that word, I mean, it, the tears started welling up in your eyes. And ephah of barley. What was an ephah of barley? Uh, this is an amount that would have weighed between 30 to 50 pounds. It was enough for one to two months worth of provision for Ruth and Naomi. So there is no question that their immediate needs were taken care of just by the amazing grace that was lavished upon her. So the question for the immediate need has been answered. Boaz is the answer to the immediate need. But there's another cliffhanger at the end of chapter 2 because the question now becomes, where is the permanent solution for her needs going to be taken care of? We already know about the immediate needs. Yeah, that's taken care of. One to two months worth is there. But what about three to four months? What about the next one to two years? What about after that? Who's going to provide 
for Ruth and Naomi. That's the, the cliffhanger at the end of chapter two. You know, to put it another way, you know, once I'm saved, am I always saved? <laughs> you know, is there going to be a permanent solution that's here for me? And that's what Naomi is concerned about in chapter three. Look at verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? When she speaks about security, she's speaking about a, a permanent solution. Shall I not seek a permanent solution? So what is Naomi looking for for Ruth? I'm, I'm looking for a place of security, of rest, in the house of a husband. Shall I not seek some permanent refuge for you? Shall I not seek that it would be well with you? And then what Ruth 3 is about is about this marriage proposal. You know, and Naomi, you know, as the older, wiser woman is giving her daughter-in-law, Ruth, some advice on how to find the right guy. So she instructs Ruth, hey, you know, go out into the field where Boaz is working. And uh, after he's had a long day and he's laying down in the field, you go up next to him and take off his shoes. <laughs> Like, wow, you know, is this, is this advice, Lord? Is that what you want me to do? Like, just find a guy and take off his shoes? This, this is not like the, the you know, the, the barefoot dating service. This is not like, you know, don't, don't take this up and, and, and start to spread it around, you know, like, you know, people who do that, that take the scriptures out of context. This is, this is very specific. Why, why Boaz and why do this to him? Because he is a kinsman. And, and, and to make this kind of proposal to him and... Hey, when he, when he wakes up, like, wait until he tells you what to do. Boaz is our kinsman. He, he's one of our relatives, and he may do what the kinsman is called on to do in Scripture. Maybe beyond just leaving the, the fields ungleaned, maybe there's something else that he might provide for you. According to Leviticus 25, a, a kinsman had the right to, to buy a family member out of slavery. There was a responsibility that they had for that if a a family member became so indebted that he had to become a slave. That kinsman had the, the right and responsibility to go and buy him out. According to Numbers 35, a kinsman would avenge a family member's death. You know, so if uh, one of the family members died, the kinsman would go after you know, that person who, uh, who attacked their family to make sure the justice was done. According to Leviticus 25, again, if a person became so poor that he had to sell his property, the kinsman would go, had the responsibility and privilege to go and buy back the land that was out of the family now to buy it back into the family. And another thing that the kinsman was able to do and had the responsibility of doing, according to Deuteronomy 25, especially if it was a brother, was to go and marry the widow of a deceased brother. And it wasn't necessarily a, a law because this is not a brother, but he's, the, he's a kinsman. He could still take that right and responsibility to himself. Maybe he'll do this for you, Ruth. So that's what... Naomi does, she sends Ruth out into the field to see if Boaz would be willing to do this for her. He was a near relative, he wasn't a brother, but maybe he will take on that responsibility of the, of the kinsman for you. So Ruth is really asking him to fulfill a specific role. If you look down at verse 11, actually I'll start at verse, verse 9, actually I'll, I'll start at verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Would you cover me? Would you protect me? Would you do what the kinsman 
should do. And he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And at this time, you know, you're just thinking that, you know, the, the, the music is going to start to play and the credits are going to close, start to roll. It's like, hey, finally, like, this is such a wonderful ending to this story, you know. And as soon as Prince Charming is about to lean down and kiss Sleeping Beauty, literally, you know, Sleeping Beauty, the dragon shows up. You know, before the, the last sentence is written, they lived happily ever after. Look at what verse 12 says. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And you want to say, hold on a minute. That's, that's not right. You know, so here Ruth and Naomi have been in Bethlehem for how long? And they've never even heard about this closer relative. Where was he all this time? They're here at the end of barley harvest. And uh, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This would have been three months later. You know, that's the cycle for the, the harvest there. Three months later, and we haven't even heard about this guy. Neither hide nor hair of this guy has shown up in the entire book of Ruth. And according to the Old Testament principle, the Old Testament law, the nearest relative was given the first opportunity to take advantage of that law, to marry the widow. So Boaz says, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I'd like to do whatever you want me to do, but, but there's another guy. <laughs> There's a, another guy that's ahead of me, and Boaz is an honorable man. He's going to follow the law of God. How, how many of you know that that's actually what love does? <laughs> that, that love says, I, I want the best. I want to honor the Lord. I'm not just going to do it because I desire to do it. I, I want to follow the, 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 the word of the Lord as it, as it relates to this. So he says, there's another guy ahead of me. There's another guy in line. So now the question is, will Ruth be provided for and protected by a husband who actually loves her? That's the question now. Because we know that the question has been answered. Hey, somebody's going to take Ruth on, but it could be Boaz or it could be this other guy that we haven't even met yet. But is she going to be provided and protected by somebody who will actually love her? This other guy hasn't shown any interest in her for the long three months that they've been in Bethlehem. So the question is, does she get Boaz or does she get the bozo? That's the question. And, and why do we care about that? Why do we care about that? Because it makes sense that the one who redeems us would also love us. And I'm not sure if we all understand that there, and I'm sure that we all do understand that there are people uh, who can provide a service for us that actually don't really care about us. You know, like, uh, you know, the government may give you a stimulus check, but does that mean that they really care about you? They really love you? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. <laughs> You know, you could get benefits from your employer, you know, retirement benefits and disability benefits, insurance, and that may mean that they love you, but then again, maybe they don't. And even in marriage, and we know that even in Scripture, there were people who were married and received the benefits of marriage, but they didn't receive the same benefits of love. Genesis 29 and 31, uh, we learned that that uh, Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah. And uh, in Genesis 29, 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. 
She had the benefit of marriage, but she didn't have the benefit of, of love. And that's a nice way to put it. In the Hebrew, it's actually, uh, he saw that she was hated. And the sad reality is that she could be redeemed, but that did not guarantee that she would be loved. And, uh, and this is where we can you know, just think about the, the redemption that comes through Christ, that we who have been redeemed by our Savior, we've actually been redeemed by somebody who loves us, somebody who cares for us. Jesus isn't just interested in the stuff of the universe. You know, he's not just interested in, uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the material that makes up the, the world. Jesus is actually interested in us. In Psalm 2 and verse 8, Scripture says, Ask of me, this is the Father speaking to the Son, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations, referring to the people, I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus was interested in, in redeeming us, that we are his inheritance. Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We are his inheritance. And our Redeemer not only inherits us, our Redeemer loves us. Galatians 2, verse 20, says the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're, we're, we're redeemed by one who actually loves us. Our Redeemer sacrificed himself in order to purchase us for himself. 20th century theologian Herman Bavink defined God's love as the goodness of God that not only conveys certain benefits, but God himself. And John Frame quotes this definition of love. He says, God's love is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures, his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. And John MacArthur, in his systematic theology, defines God's love as God's demonstration, determination to give of himself to himself and to others and his affection for himself and for his people. And all these definitions recognize that love is not just giving benefits away, it's God giving himself away. That God desires us for himself. He gives himself away in redeeming love for us. And that's why we have an interest in who does Ruth end up with? Is she going to end up with somebody who actually loves her, is willing to sacrifice for her, takes an interest in her? Or is she going to be redeemed by this villain who hasn't shown a shred of care for her in three months? You know, if you die, you die. No, where, where was he during this whole time? So that's the cliffhanger at the end of chapter three. And at this point in the story, we don't know. If you haven't read the end, you don't know who does she end up with. And Boaz is determined to settle that today. So now let's turn to chapter four. And this is where we really start the message. So I don't know, if it, I don't know how long we're going to take, but, you know, another couple hours at least. <laughs> chapter four, look at verse one. This is where the assembly sits down. Now Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So here comes the closer guy, the closer relative. He's passing by through the gate. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Verse two, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and, sat, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Here they are in the city gates. In ancient times, cities were walled in for their own protection. It's actually interesting that the difference between the cities and the villages where the cities were walled in, the villages were kind of spread out around them. 
and the, the city is distinguished in that way. And also to get into the city, you had to come through the gate. You know, that was the, the way to get into the city. And the, the gates weren't like these white picket fences. They were like these massive structures, you know, often with chambers, like rooms, you know, as you go through the gate. And this is where the official business of the city took place, at the city gates. Uh, we actually find that uh, over in Joshua chapter 20, where uh, it was at the, the city gates where business was conducted, where justice was given. So, so here you have Boaz in the gates of the city. He calls this closer relative to come and sit down. We've got some business to take care of. Also calls 10 men uh, to also sit down, sit down here, you know, with me. And he's having these witnesses. Uh, some people wonder why there were 10 men, 10 elders who were taken uh, to sit down. Uh, we understand from Jewish custom uh, that in order to make a, uh, a marriage official, you know, like the, the blessing of the bridegroom, 10 people were required to be there. You know, so it could be that, that Boaz is saying, hey, I, I want this to end in a marriage, and I need 10 guys that are going to be here to witness this thing. You know, so he's ready to take care of business today. So he makes the assembly sit down. You know, we've got some business to take care of. And then Boaz speaks up. Look at verse 3. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And you, you, you wonder here, like, hold, hold on, like, didn't he say to Ruth that I'll go and take care of you? Like, what is he doing talking about the land for? What, is, what does that have to do with Ruth? You know, does he suffer from, like, ADHD or something? Like, what's, what's going on here? Did he get distracted? You know, bump his head in the barley field and forget what he was there for? Like, he's there for Ruth. Why aren't you talking about Ruth? But this was actually Boaz's way of seeing if this relative was willing to take on the entire responsibility of the kinsman. As we talked about earlier, part of the responsibility of the kinsman was to buy back the land that belonged to a deceased relative. So he starts with the land. Hey, are, are you willing to take on that responsibility of the kinsman? He starts with the land. As if to say, you know, uh, this, is, this is part of your duty. Are you willing to take that up? And uh, look again at verse 4. Look at the response. He says, so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And how does this nearest relative respond? I will redeem it. You know, at this point, you're saying, no, not you. <laughs> because you understand that if he gets the land, he also gets the lady. If he gets the grounds, he gets the girl. We, we don't want him to end up with Ruth. This guy does not care about Ruth. He was, he, was, he was willing to allow Naomi and Ruth just to glean the fields until they died. He's not concerned about Ruth. He doesn't love Ruth. So here it is. He says, I'll, I'll redeem it. And you're saying, oh, but, but he gets the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. He gets everything with this. But uh, Boaz has a trick up his sleeve. Up his sleeve. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, well, since you said that, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, I forgot to tell you about this, you must also acquire Ruth. And, and, and in case you don't know who Ruth is, she's the Moabitess, you know, that foreign girl from that foreign country, from Moab, you know, one of our enemy nations. If you acquire the field, you also have to pick her up as well. You know, do, do, do the home inspection before you buy the house, all right? You know, see what's, what's underneath, you know, behind the walls and everything. Like, what else comes with this package? Ruth is coming with this package. You're going to have to pick up Ruth, the Moabitess. 
Are you ready to take on that responsibility as well? After the relative understands that, verse 6, the closest relative said, I I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Why does he say, I cannot redeem it? That I would jeopardize my own inheritance. It could be that this nearest relative already has a family. Maybe he already has kids. I don't, I don't want to split up, you know, the inheritance with somebody else's kids. You know, if I have to raise kids for, for you know, this deceased relative, now I've got to split it with that guy. I, I don't want to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to jeopardize my own inheritance by doing that. Or maybe it's that I, I, don't, I, I wasn't counting on taking care of two widows. You know, Naomi and, and, and Ruth, I'm not ready to take that on. I, I, you're you're going to jeopardize me. And once this relative dies, you know, guess who gets the property? This nearest relative, if he died, guess who the property goes to? That property that he acquired, it goes to Ruth's kids. Not, not his kids, it goes to Ruth's kids. You know, if he had any children by, by Ruth. So he says, no, I'm, I'm not trying to jeopardize my inheritance. You just, you take it for yourself. So this nearest relative uh, is willing for the inheritance. He wants to get the inheritance, but he doesn't want to make the sacrifice. He wants to expand his borders, but he doesn't want to expand his heart. He wants the wealth, but he doesn't want the widow. He was in it for himself. What can I get out of this deal for myself? But again, we have a redeemer who's willing to sacrifice himself to acquire this one for himself. That's the same way that it happens in the church, isn't it? That, That our savior was willing to give of himself, to sacrifice himself in order to acquire us for himself. Again, it's the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He was willing to, to give of himself, to, to, to lower himself, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And Boaz is saying, I'm willing to say yes to Ruth, even if I'm impoverished by it. I will say yes to Ruth. I'm willing to acquire Ruth and her mother and her property, even if it's at a personal cost to myself. Boaz was willing to pay the price for the joy that was set before him. And do we know anybody else like that that was willing to pay the price for the joy set before him? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Boaz was willing to pay the price, and our greater redeemer, Jesus Christ, is willing to pay the price for us. This nearest relative is is shamed for his refusal to pick up this responsibility. Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any manner uh, any matter, a man, may, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So uh, this nearest relative walks away hobbling on one foot. You know, one shoe is removed. He's given it over to Boaz and he's going back either with one shoe or maybe ripped off the other one and just went home barefoot. Shameful. What, what, what is all this about? Interesting. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you want to flip back there, Deuteronomy 25 Take a look at verse 7, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 7. 
And this might shed a little bit of light on what's going on here. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, and then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of a city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house in Israel. His name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, uh, this relative avoided the spitting in the face, (laughs) uh, but he did have his sandal removed. You know, he's not a brother, but he was a, a near kinsman. And, uh, and, and again, this may provide the, the background for some of what we find here. It wasn't the exact same thing, but he still went home in a shameful way with some kind of disgrace upon him. You know, having his shoes removed and returning home without his sandal. But there's another way that we know that this man was shamed. This nearest relative was shamed. And, and how do we know that he was shamed? Did, did anybody... Pick up his name in the text. Anybody know what this guy's name is? Uh, He's not given a name in the text. Why is that? Why isn't he given a name? In Ruth 3 and verse 12, he says, there's a relative closer than I. That's how Boaz refers to him. He's a relative. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Boaz went up to the gate, sat down, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. That, that word friend in, uh, in Hebrew, it's a, a Hebrew expression, poloni almoni. That, that's like an old Hebrew term for buddy. <laughs> you know, Mr. So-and-so. You know, whatchamacallit. You know, what's his face? Like, that, that's how he's referred to. You know, Mr. Mr. So-and-so. Come and sit down here, Mr. So-and-so. Mr. What's-your-face? Whatchamacallit, buddy? You know, just sit down over here. Did Boaz know what his name was? I mean, it's, it's a relative, I'm assuming. He, I mean, he knew who he was. He knew who he's looking for. I'm assuming he knew his name. He's a relative. But he doesn't even refer to him by name, and the text never refers to him by name. One commentator says this, Why would the narrator, who's otherwise so careful with names, keep this character anonymous? Whatever the motivation, the effect is to diminish our respect for him. He may be the kinsman redeemer, but he will shortly be dismissed as irrelevant to the central theme of the book, and the preservation of the royal line. He's not going to have this opportunity to be named, uh, to have his, his lineage preserved. And in this effort to protect his name and his inheritance, he says, hey, I can't, I can't acquire the widow because I'm going to jeopardize my own inheritance. In this effort to protect his inheritance, his name is scrubbed out of the biblical record. It's like you, you wanted to protect your inheritance, you're going to be scrubbed out of it completely. Mr. What's-His-Face disappears from the record And he serves as an illustration of everybody who does not choose to follow after obedience and uh, even could be used as an illustration of those that try to protect their lives instead of lose their lives for the sake of Christ. Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever wishes to save his life will do what? Lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, here you have uh, Mr. What's-His-Face trying to save his life, trying to save his name, 
What happened? He lost it. Lost it. So the relative is out, and now Boaz is in. Look at verse 9. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today, and you should hear in the background the wedding bells ringing. This is official. You've seen it today. I have acquired Ruth. We're together. This, this, is, this is my wife for life. This is it. I've acquired Ruth and all the 10 men who are required under the Jewish custom to be present, to witness this marriage, are all there. He's taking care of that business today. Verse 9, he says that I've acquired the land, you know, uh, rescuing uh, the land and um, this land that was in the family of uh, Naomi and uh, her husband. You know, maybe while they were gone, it fell into the hands of others. Maybe they had to sell it in order to, you know, to make ends meet. But now Boaz says, I'm going to acquire that property. I'm buying that property back. It's back in the family. And I'm going to establish that in memory of Malon, Kilion, and their father, Elimelech. This is coming back into the family line. He also resurrects their names. It's like their, their names would have died out from the, the record of Israel. Now their names are being resurrected. It's like a resurrection story. Like they're, they're coming back. Their names are going to be listed. You know, their, their names are going to be preserved. They're, they're brought back up. You know, it kind of reminds us of our names that will one day, you know, be read. It's in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name will be preserved. And here we have the names of Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech. They're preserved. They're being brought back up, and they're going to continue. So you have this that happens as he acquires Ruth. But there's one more cliffhanger that we find in chapter 4. Because in verse 10, he says, I've acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. I've acquired her, and I'm going to raise up children for her, children for the deceased. We find from... a Earlier in the book of Ruth, that Ruth was married to uh, Malon for 10 years. 10 years she's married to Malon. And guess what she does not have? Children. Has no children. Boaz is fully prepared to father a child, to raise up seed. But uh, unless the Lord builds the house, (laughs) right? Ruth was married for 10 years and she never had a child. She wasn't enabled to have children. And again, if there's anywhere that we might just look at the hand of God in the book of Ruth, I mean, this, this would be it. Cliffhanger at the end of chapter 4, is, is, is she going to be able to have offspring? Will the name of the deceased be cut off because Ruth is unable to have children? Look at verse 11. And so all the people who are in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they're, they're, they're wishing for offspring, that, that she would be fruitful. But she's already been married for 10 years, and she hasn't had a child. Is the line still in jeopardy of being cut off? Verse 13 answers that question. 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Here it is. There's a, a little boy that was born in Bethlehem. And he saved the family line. Like, like the, the family inheritance has been saved. And finally, this family was, was spared of being wiped out of existence. I mean, to have your name scrubbed out of the record of Israel was like a death sentence. And there's so much more that we could say here, but uh, even we as those that are, you know, originally sons of Ab- uh, Adam uh, were threatened of being wiped out of existence. But we had one that came through the line of Adam who saved the family, who saved the family of humanity. And who was that? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves the family line. And there was one who would come through this line, another redeemer who would come through this line. And that's what we're pointed to even in this text. Look again. It says, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. You know, Naomi, this is for you. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. We have the kingly line that comes through the son of Ruth. The kingly line. We understand from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there was a promise about one who would come from that same kingly line, that there would, be, there would come a greater king who would come through this line. And someone whose, whose inheritance and, and kingdom would last forever, that there was somebody else who was to come through this line. Very first, of, very first verse of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I was uh, sharing a little bit earlier in our Sunday school class uh, uh, something should strike you as a little bit odd in Matthew 1 and verse 1. Because who came first, Abraham or David? Abraham came first. Cr- chronologically, Abraham was first and then it was David. In Matthew, it switches the order. Why? Because David is the one that we're focused on. David is the king. And this one who has been born to Mary is going to be the king. A king has been born. And where did he come from? If you trace his line back, He came right back here to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, there's the line. It's all connected. And through the redemption of Ruth and Naomi, the son that was born to them, there would come a greater son who would be born, and he is our redeemer. He is the redeemer of all those who would believe and trust in him. And if you're here today and you have not yet trusted in, in Jesus Christ, you don't have a redeemer. You've been left out of the inheritance your name will eventually be scrubbed out of the record. There's nothing that's left for you other than to glean in this earth and eventually die and be lost forever. Jesus Christ is the one who's redeemed us. (laughs) For those of us who believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, he is your redeemer. He's the one who who not only has the the, the resources to to purchase you for himself through his death, uh, but he also is a redeemer who loves those whom he redeems. It's a redeeming love by which we're saved. We needed one who was part of the family line. 
you know, our, our family line has been wiped out because of, of Adam. We needed somebody to come who would rescue the family line. And who was that? That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one born through that line who could rescue us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's been born as a man so that he could redeem man. I came through your line so that I could redeem you. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He's the one who's come to redeem us. He's been born in our line so that he may redeem us. We needed somebody with the resources to redeem us. And Jesus Christ has all the resources. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Jesus Christ had all the resources to redeem us. His precious blood can redeem us. His precious blood can save us the unblemished, spotless blood of Christ. And we needed one who was willing to redeem us. And Jesus was willing. He was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to sacrifice himself. He wasn't like Mr. So-and-so that was unwilling to jeopardize his inheritance, wasn't willing to jeopardize his inheritance. Jesus was willing to come and to sacrifice himself for us. He was willing. Nobody took his life from him. John 10, 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Why? Because he's a God who loves us. He's a redeemer who loves us. And it's by redeeming love that we've been saved. I love the, the, uh, the, the hymn by William Cooper. Famous, powerful lines in the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood. You remember that, that song? Uh, William Cooper actually uh, suffered from depression. You know, it was often uh, depressed, but he would remind himself that there is someone who loves me and has died for me. <laughs> Listen to the words of this hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Listen to this. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Do you, do you have that theme? Is that your theme? That redeeming love is my theme and shall be till I die. That I've been saved by a redeeming love. The, the, the book of Ruth reminds us that, that we have a redeeming love. It points us to that, that greater redeemer who's loved us with a redeeming love who loved us, as Galatians 2.20 says, and gave himself up for us. Redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, your word. We pray that your word would uh, speak to us, Lord, that we would be comforted by the words of Scripture. Father, that we would see the, the greater redeemer that's pointed to in the book of, of Ruth, uh, the one who's, who's willing to, uh, uh, to sacrifice himself uh, that he might purchase us for himself, that we today as the, as the church, that we are the bride of Christ and that he's purchased us with his own blood. Uh, Father, we thank you for the redeeming love of Jesus Christ and we pray for any who are here who have not yet um, experienced that love of Christ, uh, who have not turned to Jesus Christ to receive that love, Lord, that today would be the day uh, that they would turn from their sins, uh, turn to Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life in their place, who died as a substitute 
on the cross for all those who would believe in him, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that he could give us the life that we don't deserve. Now, Father, we thank you for the redeeming love of our Savior. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.